the Gubby Gubby are the traditional custodians of the lands we record this podcast on. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, as they hold the memories, tradition and culture of this land. We extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures. Hello, I'm Kate Fisher. Welcome to Milkshakes for Mali, the podcast that tells the stories of blood donors and their recipients. We thank donors and encourage people to donate blood, plasma, platelets and breast milk. If you have ever been a donor, you could be the one who saved, prolonged or improved the quality of life for the person that we profile here each week on the podcast. And becoming a donor in the future means that you too could become a part of this story. Today, we are bringing you the final episode of season two of the Milkshakes for Mali podcast. And it's one that I recorded a little while ago, but I've been holding on to it for a while to have it as the final episode of the season because it is an absolute cracker. Chris Bond is a two-time world champion in wheelchair rugby, most recently as the captain and then two-time Paralympic gold medalist. His life took a very dramatic turn when he went from a carefree 19-year-old working in hospitality and enjoying weekends at the pubs around Canberra to saying goodbye to his loved ones within mere hours of being admitted to hospital with just gastro symptoms and suspected appendicitis. The next few months would see him be treated for sepsis, necrotizing fasciitis and having his limbs amputated. And this was all before, during the same hospital admission, he was diagnosed and began his treatment for blood cancer, APML. Chris's story is absolutely remarkable. And what I loved about this chat is the unapologetic pragmatism with which he tells it. And that's fair enough too. I've been hanging in all year for this interview until he returned home after captaining captaining Australia to becoming world champions. But what I didn't know about this interview before I started recording it is that it would end up hitting very close to home for my husband, Jeff and I. Chris and his wife, Bridie, are also parents to a surviving twin. Just months before we recorded this interview, one of Chris's identical twins, who they named Alexander, took his first and last breaths in Chris's arms. And Chris explains how those moments put the over 60 surgeries, skin grafts, cancer treatment and bone marrow transplants all into perspective. Whether it's hundreds or thousands of blood donors that have kept Chris alive, we tried to work it out in the episode and we really can't be sure. But ahead of the International Day of People with Disability on Monday the 5th of December, I can't think of a better story to illustrate how Australian blood donors don't just save lives, they can improve quality of life, keep families together, and then allow for the creation of little lives. We dedicate this episode to baby Alexander and send all of our love to the Bonds and to all the families of surviving twins. We know how tough the lead up to Christmas can be for bereaved parents. And we ask anyone who is touched by this episode or any of our others, to make an appointment to donate blood by calling 13 14 95 during December. And if it feels right for you, please add your donation to the Milkshakes for Mali Lifeblood Team Tally. Now on with today's episode and my chat with world and Paralympic champion 
and true Aussie legend, Chris Bond. Today, we welcome two-time Paralympic gold medalist, Chris Bond, to the Milkshakes for Mali podcast and community. Welcome, Chris. Thanks, Kate. Wonderful to be here. Um, and welcome back to Australia. You've recently returned from captaining Australia to winning the Wheelchair Rugby World Cup Championships. Congratulations and what an amazing achievement. Thanks, mate. Yeah, it's uh, it's nice to be back. Um, I was hoping to come back to sunny Sunshine Coast and got back and it was <laughs> rained out and this place is flooding and uh, not ideal, but um, yeah, it was an amazing feat um, for our team to win the World Championships. Um, for me, it's the second time I've done that. Um, I've been quite successful, um, but then you know, coming home, get very grounded very quickly that, you know, I'm a dad of two, um, under two, under three. Um, oh, wow. And, my, and I'd been away for three weeks and my partner kind of almost handed me the kids at the door and be like, all right, dad, you're back. So Yeah, fair call. Um, yeah. <laughs> so it seems like a long time ago, um, but when I put my, my brain back to that, it was an amazing accomplishment, amazing few weeks with that squad and um, probably my last world championship I'll ever play. I'm, I am getting older too. Um, so to have your last one going out as a winner, um, it's pretty special. So does that mean no to another Paralympics? Well, I think I'll go for another two years for a Paralympics. Um, the way our sport works in wheelchair rugby is, I guess, it's a Paralympics every four years and a world championships every four years. So right. essentially every two years is a major competition. Mm-hmm. So I reckon I'm 36 now, Kate, and I've been doing this for 12 years. So I reckon... Yeah, two more years in, in Paris, um, I've probably got left in me and then then I'll kind of be done, I reckon, at that level, yeah. So what chance did, your, did you give yourself when you jumped on that plane to go over for the World Championships? Because, you know, I read a bit of media around it at the time and whatever, and I think, you know, Australia loves an underdog and we, you know, bloody love a good survival story. Um, I think you guys were probably a little bit underestimated when you went into that World Championships and how good did that feel? I'd say that's probably right, mate. Like I've been a part of the squad for a long time. So we've had a years and years of dominance and being number one. And then mm-hmm. more recently, you know, during COVID times, we couldn't get together. And during the Tokyo Paralympics, for anyone that watched that, um, you know, we were favourite to win that. Um, yep. And we would have gone back to back and, and we didn't. Uh, we only won one game and just showed how important as a team sport it is to get together and play together. And and then we had a, some people take, you know, retire and some other people take some time off. Um, and we were sort of starting to rebuild our team a little bit and um, we didn't really have a full strength team together at all for like mm-hmm. the whole year. Um, and we didn't win tournaments leading up to it. Um, so, yeah, we kind of, for the first time in my whole career, we're going into a major tournament as underdogs. Yeah. Um, but we kind of use that to our advantage, you know. Like, as you said, like Aussies love that. Um, it's kind of the hero story that yeah. you want to follow and um, there's no pressure, you know, it was yeah. just, um, it was ours to go out there and, and I knew deep down we had, all we had to do was get everyone together in a, for a period of time to work, work together and, and understand what we stand for and, um, mm-hmm. and build that culture back. So um, yeah, luckily enough, we, we had the time to do that in the next, the last sort of month or two months leading into it. Yeah. And um, the rest is history, you know, a bit of a fairy tale competition for us. And I'm just really glad that we've got, in a quarter of our team are brand new. Um, mm-hmm. They've never tasted victory at all. So we can actually share something like that with those guys because um, yeah. some of us have done that before. So it's pretty special. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. And amazing to be in the position of captain to bring that team together as well and to be able to achieve that feat. Yeah. Yeah. As I said, I'm, I'm a dad of two and, and there's an extra layer of winning that as a yeah. captain, as a leader and instilling some 
some systems to help us get there. And um, it's it's proud, like a proud dad moment for the team, you know, and just I kind of feel what it likes, what it's almost like to be a coach as well in yeah, that respect. Yeah. So, so is yeah. that something you would consider in the next phase of your career, coaching? I think so. Um, we've been doing it for so long. Um, mm. We've got a lot of, I guess, um, skill and, and advice to give. Um, I think I do it naturally anyway. Like yeah. I still play socially down the local the local club and help mentor and coach um, people coming up in the sport. So mm-hmm. I think naturally I will. I've, I've coached at a at like a, a state level um, yeah. already, and and I enjoy it. Um, but I'll wait till I'm finished playing, yeah, and we'll see where that leads to. Yeah, <laughs> help your wife out with some more sleepless nights first before you set another <laughs> training schedule <laughs> floating all over the world. <laughs> um, now, you were nominated things, yeah. for this podcast by our amazing mutual mate, Katie Williams, um, who I believe you had many a drunken night at Mooseheads with back in Canberra. Um, Jeez, it's going we, back a bit. Yeah, yeah <laughs> going way back. So we lived in Canberra for 17 years before we moved here to the sunny coast. Um, we've been mm-hmm. up here for two years now. And we're certainly yep. enjoying uh, the winters a little bit more here than what we did <laughs> back in Canberra. Um, so can we just talk about those days a little bit? So back before your cancer diagnosis, um, what did life look like for you? Yeah, pretty typical, to be honest. I was, I was very athletic and very active. So I mm-hmm. you know, joined all my sports teams in school and I was kind of known as the sporty kid, you know, I was always going to the state championships in running or football or soccer or cricket. It didn't really matter. I was kind of just love sport and playing sport. And always when we finished school, we'd go ride bikes out the back up the hill or pull the wheelie bins out and take cricket on the street. So yeah, that's kind of my life. And then, you know, you get to 17, 18 years old and you finish school and then it things change a little bit. There's a little bit less time for that kind of activity and sport. And I was working um, as a cook at uh, Ridges Hotel there in city oh, yeah. uh, in Canberra yeah. for four years. So between morning shifts and then some some night shifts um, and then anything in between that was just going out with, with friends, really. Like Canberra's a small town. So, you know, the only way to keep up with people after you finish school is to go out and on the town and yeah. usually involves a fair few drinks and yep. uh, things that you wouldn't <laughs> repeat to your mother. But, um, yeah, it was good fun and that's what you do at that age, you know, party, have fun and um, – but still, you know, working towards some sort of career in that industry, in the restaurant mm-hmm. industry at the time, um, until sort of everything changed, I suppose, at 19. Yeah, yeah. sure. So what was your first indication that something wasn't quite right? How did you know that you were unwell? It was a tricky one because, as I said, I was very sort of fit and healthy and, you know, mm-hmm. um, in shape and didn't smoke and just, you know, was binge drinking and partying, but that's about it. So yeah. I was kind of run down a bit, but... Um, didn't have really really bad symptoms I suppose because mm-hmm. you know, the body was in good shape so yeah yeah I initially just felt a bit run down I went to the doctor they gave me some antibiotics you know had an infection they said I probably had an infection and something mm-hmm. um and then the other sort of telltale sign was just some like bleeding gums like when I was brushing my teeth and stuff like that um right. which I thought was was odd and just didn't really you know 19 year old guy just invincible you don't get things checked so just carried on and uh yeah I guess until until I couldn't <laughs> yeah that's it just kind of you know act as if it's it wasn't like you know profusely bleeding just like little yeah, yeah. bits and but apparently that's a sign um of things that are wrong so yeah I didn't know that at the time yeah yeah and that's one of the important things about this podcast too is we love to tell 
people's stories of what their warning signs were that something could go wrong. So, you know, people might not normally associate that with wanting to go and get checked out by their medical professional, but we've had lots of little incidental things like that that people have said that have alerted other people to the fact that something might not be right. So that's an important thing to share with our listeners. Um, When did things get acutely bad, though? How did you know that there was something really, really bad? Um, my story is like very acute. So I, yeah, I was probably a bit run down for that two weeks that I mentioned, um, took some time off work and then I was like, all right, I'm well enough to go back to work. So went in and and I was working in the kitchen, um, doing a, a, like an evening shift. Um, and yeah, I was working and then just feeling a bit, still feeling a bit off and then kind of got worse throughout the night and, um, got to around the time we'd have our break and have some food and, I wasn't hungry and I was like, that's just not me. You know, 19 year old guy who's always eating. Yeah. Like, oh, there's something really wrong if you're not hungry and still a bit run down. So my boss just said, look, just um, look, go home and, um, you know, see how you feel tomorrow. So I did. And then on the way, like driving home at night, I was kind of, you know, kind of swerving on the road a bit out of sorts. Like I started stabbing pains in my stomach and all this. And I was like, oh, yeah, you know, it's all good. Just sleep it off, you know. And don't tell anyone. So I got home and just went straight to bed, shower bed, and still the same deal, stabbing pains. And then through the night, I was getting up and, you know, had diarrhea and I was vomiting mm. and all this just cramps and all that kind of thing and just toughed it out as a, again, 19 year old thinking that you know, it'll just pass and yeah. don't want to bother anyone. And then next morning, same deal. And everyone went to work and I was just in the, in the house by myself and curled up in a ball on the floor, really. And again, probably, I don't know if it was too proud or just, wasn't really used to go on the doctor or just kind of kept my head down. And um, it got to the point, it was like two, two to two or four o'clock in the afternoon at that stage. And I was like, Oh, this is getting really bad. Like I, I've never felt like this before in my life. And then yeah, called my mum, and then she got my stepfather at that time to, to come and take me to the doctor. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, yeah, it did took me to the GP. And by that stage I was basically crawling on the ground, like in that oh, much wow. pain and the doctor's, sort of put me on the table that pressed my stomach a little bit and just said, oh, you probably got appendicitis, like, you know, rushed to hospital. Right. So, yeah, I did, like, throwing up on the way to hospital and then, yeah, same deal, not fretting uh, in the waiting room, sorry, at emergency. Yep. Um, and then, yeah, next minute I was rushed into into emergency. Um, the doctors took me in and next thing I know, they said, um, you know, we we did some tests or something and said, yeah, we've got to um, take you in for – for an operation uh, say goodbye to your family it was literally that that quick um oh, Chris. and then i woke up three days later after an induced coma so yeah so say goodbye to your family in terms of the fact that they didn't think you'd survive the surgery they didn't know yeah they just said you know your body was shutting down essentially um at that stage before they kind of could do like open me up and see what was going on or do more tests so um they just said that we need to rush you into surgery um and yeah we we don't we don't know or like the chances. Um, yeah. So mum just, I did have time to sort of ring mum. She came in um, and then my sister was there. Like She was like six or seven at the time and um, called my best mate at the time said, I don't know what's happening, but you know, um, thanks for being there, which is weird at 19 to have to do that. And then I didn't even get a chance to say bye to mum. They were literally rolling me in. I just kind of wait until I'll see when I get out. So that's, that's, how quick and acute my, I guess, my story of my illness was going in. Yeah. Wow. 
It's just incredible. And isn't it phenomenal, the clarity that you can have in those moments, even though it's so traumatic that you kind of know exactly the people that you need to talk to in those moments and just brings everything into such focus. Well, it does, doesn't it? Like we watch a lot of movies and I guess you did that kind of sheds light on other people's stories and behaviours. But yeah, you kind of think, oh, movies always keep it keep you thinking, well, how would I react in that situation? And mm-hmm. I guess, yeah, it's just like when it comes to reality, it, it's a bit surreal, but it's, uh, yeah. you do, it's, it's like the teacher at school, you know, you look at your hand and that's how many people that mean the most to you, you know, the most important people. And that's who you draw to when your life's in the balance. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess they would feel pretty special to be a part of those. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. I know it must be hard to go back and relive those moments. And um, I'm sure telling that story as a father of two little kids now hits a little bit differently to what it did previously when you think about the fact that, you know, one, you know, I hope it never has to happen, but you think about the way that your parents must have reacted in that time saying goodbye to their child. Yeah, definitely. It's a whole new, whole new uh, light now that I've got my own children on how it affected my family and, you know, my parents and my siblings and everything. And, um, yeah, my partner and I lost a child um, four months ago, actually, um, oh, during a twin so birth. Sorry. So we have sort of felt that sort of real acute level of, of grief. Um, so, yeah, it's it's definitely very tough. And it it, it uh, adds to my layer of um, how much I admire my, my mom and everything she did while I was in hospital as well. So. Oh, Chris, I had no idea. I'm so sorry. So did yeah. your child die during pregnancy or died during birth? uh no he was born um he had a, a, a rare condition um where his brain was uh swelling up essentially um so yeah we kind of knew uh early on in the pregnancy um and then it was a really battle between when do we do we potentially terminate him early and then jeopardize it for his twin brother or do we wait which also could jeopardize his twin brother because he's getting bigger and bigger and you know body can only hold so much and um it helped yeah it all went fairly smoothly to the plan but um yeah he was born um and then passed away yeah in you know in my arms actually yeah 20 minutes after which we knew was going to be the case but um yeah still in that moment it's pretty it's pretty raw and confronting and um we talked before about movies it's almost like putting yourself in a in another sort of movie but um that is life i suppose and i i guess in one way um you know, my partner was a survivor of meningococcal as well. Uh, I wasn't, but, you know, she's she's a double amputee. I'm a quadruple amputee. We've had a lot of grief in our lives. And I think our journey has almost helped us, you know, with the resilience needed to take on something like that. Um, not that it makes it any easier, but um, we've got coping skills. Um, and, yeah, it's uh, just part of life, I suppose. Yeah. So I didn't know that about you before we started this interview. Um, and I mentioned Katie previously, our mate. Mm. And so the three of us all share and our families and partners all share a common bond that you wouldn't wish upon anybody. So, um, Katie had little Hannah and Amelia and, um, at 24 weeks and Amelia passed away. Um, they've still got little Hannah, who is a little firecracker and she Mm. is fragile as she is fierce. I only saw her in Canberra a few weeks ago and she just rocks my world. I just can't believe that, you know, she went from that teeny tiny little premature baby to the sass and the amazing attitude that she's got now. (laughs) 
um, mm-hmm. and they came very close to losing their son, Hugh, as well. Um, so they've had an incredible journey. Um, but our middle guy, Campbell, our 10-year-old, is a surviving twin. So his twin brother, Benjamin, died during our pregnancy. Um, and we had some really tough decisions to make around that as well and what we would do. Um, we were offered a selective reduction um, in the pregnancy, early in the pregnancy, um, because that would give at least one of the babies the best chance to survive. And that wasn't an option that we took at the time, but our Benjamin died during the pregnancy. Um, I carried them both to term and birthed them both. So I have a small understanding of what it is like. Um, and I'd say also, more than a small understanding, Kate, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, yes. Also, you know, the incredible journey that it is as the parent of a surviving twin to be able to raise them and have that little understanding of what, you know, life could have been like things like, you know, seeing a twin pram for a long time would devastate me. The twin trolley, you know, with the two seats at the front of a shopping trolley, um, Campbell and Benjamin were identical twins. They're a single embryo transfer um, off an IVF cycle. So every time Campbell looks in a mirror or his first day of school and not having his brother with him or, you know, scoring a goal of soccer earlier in the year and, you know, wondering what it would have been like if Benjamin was running around on the field with him. So I just, I'm so sorry. I didn't know that about your family. And if there's anything that our family can do to offer you guys any support, um, we're only up the road. We've just worked out. So we're absolutely (laughs) here for it um, if there's anything that we can do. So thank you for sharing that story. No, thanks, Kate. It's... um in a way, and you might feel the same, it's almost a silver lining in that yeah, we lost one son, but we have a son, you know what I mean? Yeah. So we haven't, it's not all grief, you know, there's yeah. some happiness and we try and lean into that for a bit more. Um, and the funny thing is I'm an identical twin um, as well. So um, I guess our partners must always be um, sort of bring that, bring them back to that because mm. we look exactly the same still at, you know, 36 years old and then, Lincoln's on his own so yeah it's uh just one of those things that we'll we'll have to live with like like your family too yeah Yeah. absolutely well thank you for sharing that with us that's yeah I'm so sorry for your loss anything else that I say after that just feels useless I've written an interview now that seems completely frivolous and useless after that so we'll just take a minute have a sip of the tea have a sip of the water nothing else seems all that important after that So um, let's take it back to um, 19-year-old Chris. So you've gone from progressing from thinking that you might pass away, you're thinking that there's an infection. Um, How did that progress to cancer diagnosis and becoming a quadruple amputee? Yeah, so as I mentioned, I was kind of rolled into theatres and then woke up, you know, three days later in ICU, um, tubes to my throat, Uh, my body was be three times the size like swollen up um there was bandages you know everywhere there was they cut me open in places um my body was like dark purple and black essentially uh Mm -hmm. all over um couldn't move um could barely talk and just kind of like what the hell has happened you know just a fit active young guy and i'm sitting here as i told you i feel like i'm in a movie like this isn't me like what's going on Mm -hmm. um and then, you know, very severely, you know, um, essentially on life support, like pretty, you know, the doctors would kind of put their heads down when they walked past the room with mum and all that because they didn't think I'd survive. And yeah. 
um, yeah, that's kind of like the first question anyone would say is, you know, what, what happened? You know, what, yeah. what is going on? Um, and it took them a few days to actually even tell me because there's so much going on with dialysis machines hooked up and everything. Like, mm. um, and yeah, essentially what happened is, uh, um, so what they discovered is I had a rare blood disorder called APML leukemia um, that I'd had um, for a while, I suppose, um, which is a cancer, a blood cancer. Um, which essentially had to stripped me of my immunity. Um, and therefore I was starting to feel a bit run down and you know, couldn't really fight anything that would come up with my body. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also had a in- bacterial infection called necrotizing fasciitis, which is a, mm-hmm. like a flesh-eating bacteria, essentially, which you can pick up anywhere. And I was a very active kid, so you can get it from mm-hmm. you know, the bush or stormwater drains or a creek or whatever. You know, I was mm-hmm. always out and about doing stuff. Um, and, and didn't know um and yeah so one you, you can... sorry one didn't cause the other there were just two separate events that hit you at the same time essentially yeah i had the cancer and just was pushing through it without because i was so fit and healthy um was kind of not affecting me too much um obviously not feeling 100 percent, but just pushing through and then yeah. i must have acquired this other infection somewhere and then either on their own probably fine but together uh it's just a yeah, not a great mix. So the body didn't have the, the immune system to fight the infection and it just ran ran rampant in my body. Um, so yeah, essentially what they had to do, the body was sort of shutting down essentially. Um, so it was swelling up, they had to cut me open a few different places to release the pressure um, and then pump me full of bloods, antibiotics um, to try and fight the infection at the time. Um, and yeah, on the operating table, um, I went into septic shock, um, mm-hmm. body going into sepsis. So I was, uh, the body was essentially shutting down um, it's my extremities to keep my, my vital organs alive. It's like that one last ditch effort. Um, they're shutting the blood to go from my extremities to keep to my, my organs. Um, mm. And then I went into cardiac arrest um, a couple of times. So yeah, the heart was sort of shutting down. So yeah, officially died a couple of times and they sort of brought me back to life with the, with the, the um, defibrillators. Uh, and yeah, they just kind of, hooked me up with bloods and antibiotics and sort of hoped I would survive the night. <laughs> Probably didn't think too much of it that I would, but um, I'm still here. So yeah, I did. And then, yeah, after it put me in induced coma to let my body sort of recover. So when I woke up, because my body went to that septic shock, um, yeah, essentially my extremities had, had, had died off essentially with, with no blood supply. So kind of what you see in some magazines of like rock, rock, rock-like like a statue almost like black and um and a bit swollen and that kind of thing um uh and yeah eventually i just like yeah eventually the body kind of recuperated itself uh in icu so i was there for about a month um they couldn't do anything about the cancer at that time because i was just too in poor health to deal with any kind of poison right so yeah one thing at a one thing at a time so um lots of antibiotics and yeah, my kidneys had shut down, um, so I was on a dialysis machine as well. Um, so did someone tell you that you had cancer during all of this? Uh, it took a few days. De- like, everything was a bit hazy at the time, but, yeah, um, yeah it kind of took a few days to get any kind of real diagnosis, and I suppose right. they were all new to this as well, so they were working it out. But, yeah, it took a few days that, at least to me, they probably told my parents and stuff, but, yeah, yeah to yeah. me, it took... Um, yeah, a few days to, and then I didn't know what that was. I didn't know what cancer was. was I'd never been in a hospital before except for a broken wrist. So um, it was all kind of sinking in and then 
reality started to hit that this was my new life and it was really hard to see past anything after being so active and then seeing your your, your body parts die off and not thinking mm. I'd be able to do anything in my life. So, yeah, long story short, it was, yeah, about a month in ICU and then I moved to a ward um, uh, where, like an infectious disease ward where I was, um, they were starting to, um, yeah, deal with the infection, I suppose, and then every other infection that I picked up in hospital, you know, yeah. the golden staffs and the MRSA and everything that just happens when you've yep. got open wounds and you're in a hospital. So that was a long journey, um, probably about, yeah, nine or 10 months until I could actually get onto my chemotherapy journey. Um, and then after about two months in hospital, they were coming in and doing daily debridements of my, my, um, my body because that skin had died off. They had to start to rip off this. It's pretty gross, but like rip off the scabs with a scalpel mm. like every day and, and re-bandage every day um, until it got to the point where they waited to see how much of my body would actually survive once the, yeah. so they debrided and once the. Is that the, as um, painful as it sounds? Pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. So let's not yeah. kid ourselves. Uh, it is. Um, and then, yeah, and then they, I got booked in. Um, I remember the doctor coming in and said, oh, okay, well, now we know where the infection's gone to and what we can save. Um, we're going to take your left hand and um, most of your right fingers first mm-hmm. um, and then give it a couple of weeks and then we're going to take both your legs um, below the knee off um, and see how we go. So, yeah, it was... So the amputations didn't really... happen during that first acute phase of the infection? No, they had to wait and see how much they could save because they cut too early, wow. you know, because it was all black and everything, they wanted to see like gradually the, the body sort of healed itself in parts mm-hmm. until my very extremity. So I didn't want to take too much off first. Mm-hmm. Plus it's probably too much of an ordeal for my body to take in that initial stage till it got sort of settled. So yeah, so yeah were you in this Canberra one, or Sydney? Did you manage to Canberra, stay in Canberra? No, this whole whole thing was in Canberra. Yeah, right. they got some the surgeon came from Sydney, but right. um I was too too bad to move. So yeah, I was yeah, sure. Canberra Hospital. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just remember that one defining moment where the, that doctor came in and was like, um, he essentially drew a stick figure and said, this is what you'll look like after. And I think it was that moment that reality hit and just kind of really broke down and just could not see anything past that. And I was like, all right, well, my life's over essentially. Yeah. Wow. So I don't know whether you are aware of um, Dr. Dinesh Palapana. He um, was the first um quadriplegic emergency medicine doctor in Australia and he's here in southeast Queensland as well um I think we should all get together and have a drink at some stage because he's a great guy but um he's just released um his um, memoir it's called Stronger and in it he so beautifully illustrates um the difference between the physical injuries that he had following he's got a spinal cord injury he's quadriplegic um, following his car accident and the impact that that had um, compared to how disabling and debilitating the mental health impacts were that he had after that. And very much what you just said, feeling like his life was just over at that point and not just the impact it had on him, but the impact that it had on his whole family as well. Do you think the mental health impacts or the physical impacts were more debilitating for you? Um, in the initial stage, probably both equal because, because I was so sick and they'd kept me in like stationary and I actually couldn't move like at all, um, Mm -hmm. for a while. So I couldn't do anything myself. Um, you know, see some amputees and car crash or whatever it is, and they're kind of 
up and about the next month or they're, you know, it's a lot different when you're acutely sick as well. Um, mm. So, yeah, my body was kind of frozen and locked in because I hadn't been able to move it. I had atrophied so much. I was like 80 kilos of muscle and down to, you know, 40 kilos of literally skin and bone. So yeah. um, it was entirely debilitating that I couldn't do anything for myself. I wasn't independent at all. Like I was getting, you know, sponge bath every day, fed, you know, um, all that kind of stuff. And that was probably, that was very traumatizing being 19 year old, fully independent, you yeah, know, of course. Most people would say, you know, pretty good looking, you know, fit guy. Like you're always kind of, I don't know, like, you know, the man kind of, you know what I mean? It's like yeah. always sporty kind of a job, yeah, yeah. job, but that kind of style. And then to like be back to baby stages, like um, that was tough because of the physical component, but mm-hmm. then it leads into the mental component too. But the mental side was extremely tough, like trying to look beyond that. Um, mm-hmm. I, my mum vividly tells it, you know, a, a month or you know, probably a few weeks into it, you know, she tells me that I was literally crying and telling her to, to switch me off. Like I'm done, like unplug me. And she's like, honey, you're not plugged in or anything. Like, it's not that easy. You can't, yeah. Yeah. you know, even I've had thoughts of wanting, not wanting, not seeing myself past this. I, I literally was thinking about how can I, I do it? And I couldn't, there's no way I couldn't even move. And that was even more debilitating to know that I didn't ever have any control in that either. So yeah, it's tough, but the old cliche that time heals all and in both like physical and mental health um it's true it's just kind of grit your teeth and get through those rough times yeah so how do you get from that bed in the Canberra hospital where you can't even do basic self-care tasks obviously a lot of rehabilitation is the obvious answer but how do you then set your sights on becoming a professional athlete yeah, well, I'd always been sporty. So yeah. fast forward a lot. It was kind of like once I got out of the whole system, you know, cancer free, done my rehabilitation, learned how to walk, you know, fed, feed myself independent enough, you know, driving. It was like, all right, well, now what? Like, you know, everyone, all my other friends are you know, in their early 20s and got jobs and doing things that no one's going out partying anymore. And um, <laughs> what am I going to do? Kind of like, I'm not going to work in the kitchen anymore. <laughs> yeah, I know, unfortunately. Um, probably in it for, for the good reason but and it was like all right, I would always love sport let's see what sports are there for people with disabilities and yeah. um yeah I, I was training by doing some outpatient rehabilitation at um the Canberra hospital um yeah. with my old friends you know Merrill and Burr um who would have you know a cup of tea at 10 10 in the morning and they'd be you know 17 80 year olds and I'm sitting there doing my gym going <laughs> all right we get moved past this you know two and a half kilo dumbbell that all my old mates are doing. I need to get into some, something with my own age group, something with um, yeah. a bit more focused on some of the stuff I was doing, getting my strength back and stuff. And they put me in onto the AIS, which is yep. next door essentially. So I started just training in that gym with, a, with some, uh, you know, some of Australia's best athletes essentially around me. I was a nobody, but um, yeah. And they just said, I just said, what para sports are there? And they just mm-hmm. said, Oh, probably I don't know for you like in your disability probably swimming's the only thing you'd ever be able to be competitive in and right I was always a runner not a not a swimmer I was mm. um, but I thought I'd give it a go um so yeah started swimming and I don't know about you but you know 5 a.m Canberra winters getting up yeah, no. swimming uh following not a black a line mm. wasn't really my cup of tea I was more of a teen sport kind of guy contact sport kind of guy but I did it because they said that's the pathway and then luckily enough I found like one of the coaches of the Wichita rugby team was in the AIS gym while I was there and just said, yep. oh, hey, have you ever thought of this sport? And I was like, no, never heard of it, but sign me up because I'm yeah. kind of sick of this swimming thing. And um, 
I'd love to do some kind of contact team sport. And yep. that's kind of how I found wheelchair rugby. Yeah. So for our listeners that aren't familiar with the wheelchair rugby, can you just give us just a brief overview? You know, if people think about the rugby that, you know, they would imagine if they've, you know, been watching the Brumbies mm. or whatever in Canberra, how does your sport differ to that? A lot. <laughs> the reason it's called rugby essentially is because it's full contact. Um, and it's a, it's a team sport. It was derived from Canada in the 70s and it's a mix of like American sports such as the ice hockey, gridiron, basketball, a um, bit of soccer. Um, but yeah, they call it rugby because it's a full contact wheelchair sport. It's, uh, it's a mixed sport, which some people don't know. So men and women yep. compete um, together. Yep. Uh, essentially, there's four players at a time compete against each other on a basketball court. And the aim of the game is to get a carry uh, the ball, which is like a volleyball, um, through the cones at the other end, the try line, uh, in 40 seconds. And then you've got 12 seconds to get over the halfway. Um, in terms of stopping people, well, it's full contact, so you can hit them as hard as you like if they it fall out. It is <laughs> I was yeah. very surprised so watching your World Championship stuff. Like, I did not expect it to be that intense. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, the best way I describe it. It's it's like dodging cars mixed with chess. It's yes. yeah, it's full content. You hit it anyone as hard as you like, but it's very tactical and strategic uh, once you get to the highest level. And and the range of impairments is quite diverse. So I would be one of the highest functioning athletes. Right. So I got full core movement. You know, very strong. No limitations for spinal or anything. Yeah. Um, whereas my lowest functioning teammates, you know, high level neck injuries. You know, low movement. So I'll be carrying the ball, scoring all the goals, you know, doing all the fast movements, but their job is to sort of be, they're a lot slower than me, but they're going to get smart in how they defend and I can yeah. use them as a shield going up court be the muscle. and they yeah. can sort of lock, lock people in with their pick bars and stuff. So it is very tactical in that way. You can't just have four of me on court. You have yeah. to have some of those lower functioning guys and then work out what the best combination is. So mm. if you haven't seen it, I, I guarantee you'll like it. Um, yeah. Just check it out. Wheelchair rugby. Wheelchair rugby. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll make sure we'll pop a link um, to some of your games in our show notes as well so that people can, yeah, at least see a bit of a highlight reel of the world championships because it was, it was intense. Like it was really yeah. intense. We loved watching it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so obviously this has given you the opportunity to travel the world um, in your profession. Only this week, um, Anastasia Palaszczuk announced that it is the year of accessible tourism next year. Um, how does Australia compare to the rest of the world in terms of accessibility? It varies, I mm -hmm. think. I think we've got a long way to go um, in Australia and like me in UK, local to the Sunshine Coast. Like I still go down the beach and there's yeah. no way to get down to the beach in a wheelchair mm -hmm. unless you're extremely organised in, in a couple of beaches ring ahead and ensure they've got a map that will accompany you. So, yeah, yeah it's uh, a long way to go. Um, but I think we're heading in the right direction, especially mm. if that's the message. I think yeah. my partner, Bridie Keane, she's, she's done a lot with the Tokyo, not Tokyo, sorry, the Brisbane 2032 bid uh, yeah. for our home games. And I think her big, big piece of advocacy is that, you know, it's a chance to make us the most accessible nation. Like that can be one of the byproducts from having the games is that we yeah. can show the world that people can come from everywhere and if you've got a disability or, or not um, and yeah. we'll accommodate you here. And why yeah. wouldn't you want to come to Queensland? Like it's an amazing place and yeah, it's yeah. good, good weather, mm -hmm. things to do. 
Um, we're not there yet, but I think if we put our targets on it, that's mm. the main thing. And then we can start um, upgrading our infrastructure to accommodate that, I believe. Mm. Um, but yeah, recently going to Denmark, um, yeah, we went to a facility for a, a, tr- a test event prior to world championships and mm. I was blown away. Like they've got whole kind of resorts and accommodations set up for, um, for the highest level of people with disabilities. Like all the rooms had, you know, ceiling tracks that people get from their bed to, to the showers. They, all the benches were, you know, motorized up and down, you know, big spacious areas, um, you know, beds that you could lock and, and move if you needed for people with impairments at that level. <laughs> well, I don't need that level of support, but it like, yeah, but it goes still. to show if you, if you, if you build it, for, for the lowest the people that need it the most and everyone yeah. can still use it that's that's the whole yeah. point of accessibility yeah. in equity you build every building with wider door frames able-bodied people can still get through them you know what i mean yeah. you build a ramp yeah. people can still use it but if yeah. you don't then you're excluding people so mm. that's kind of an extreme level not everything's going to be like that but it was just mm. it was just mind-blowing that that's that's the level that they went to over there and um and their their population of people with disability are, are thriving from it mm. uh, in all areas of their life. So mm. why shouldn't we think of that when we, when we especially if you're creating something from scratch? Why don't mm. we make it accessible to everyone uh, first? Yeah, um, makes it easier than retrospectively fitting. Yeah, mm. yeah, we've certainly experienced it. So um, with Marley's autoimmune encephalitis, she depending on how inflamed her brain is. She has a very big range of different. So at the moment she's in remission, she's well, she's at school up to 14 hours a week. Um, she's doing brilliantly. Um, she has been at times mixed use in a wheelchair, um, using a speech device to communicate. So they're sort of the, or, you know, in ICU um, in an induced coma, like they're our range of her abilities. Um, and so we've had times where she's been, you know, in a wheelchair she's got a service dog as well and just trying to navigate like a shopping center or you know you just it's just things that I just hadn't even considered previous to having to navigate this with our kids um all of our kids have various um physical and neurodevelopmental disabilities so one of the things that I've loved since moving to Queensland is the fact that it might not always be accessible but people are so open to just helping you like Queenslanders just want to get shit done they don't really care. <laughs> you know, they're ha- more happy for you to ask for what you need is what we have really found since moving up here. And it's such a beautiful attitude to just be able to go, we need this changed or we need this help or this accommodation. And we found people here really receptive. So I hope that has been your experience as well. And I think, you know, it's such a good thing with the Paralympics coming for us to set that goal to change that landscape of accessibility in Australia. Yeah, I agree, mate. Um, mm. Even this morning, like we took our daughter to swimming lessons um, and I was on my prosthetic leg, so I didn't mm-hmm. need the accessible bathroom or anything. But um, I'm like, all right, can I get to the parents' room? Went to the parents' room and there's no bathroom. There's no toilet in there. I'm like, how's my daughter going to go to the bathroom? Yeah, yeah. And I don't know if I should be taking it to a, an adult male restroom. Like um, mm. little things like that. They're not even yep. like disability focused, just like you know, a parent, what's, how can yeah. they take their child to a bathroom when they, they need to go and then like toilet training them? Like, mm. yeah, it just, it seems to me like people are fairly closed minded or didn't consult the right people when they're building these new, and this is a new facility down our yeah. local shops. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. like it's only two, three years old. Um, I think mm. it's probably an emphasis in that respect. Like we're, 
when you're doing planning, like reach out because people give you great ideas. It's not difficult. You just and just put a toilet in there. Like, yeah, you know, it's well, not, that, not a and, massive change. Know, yeah. Fathers are equal parents as well. Like, don't just set exactly. up the world for mothers like that. My yeah, hubby yeah. had trouble accessing, you know, parents' rooms like that at times too, where they weren't happy with you know him being in there changing our daughter's nappy and like. Oh really. He's, you know, she's our kid. Like <laughs> he does this hundreds of times across our children. That's just yeah. the way that it is. Um, so we touched on whether you would um, look forward to going to um, the next Paralympic Games um, yep. and what life might look like for you after that. Is there any other big goals that you've got that you've set for yourself? After the Games or... Just at all? Like, what do you see as the next decade of your life? Like, what does oh, life look like for you going forward? I think it's just been a dad, to be honest, for the for the most part. Like, yeah, I'll definitely continue being an athlete. I want to build on our recent success. And it's the first time I've captained the team and it's come to success. So there's an extra layer to that um, in my journey as an athlete. And then yeah. obviously other peripheral things like helping the next generation in my other roles and advisory groups around sport. And I work in sport. So um, I work for Sporting Wheelies and Disabled Association. I, yeah. I head up our sports department. So yeah. I guess for me it's around how can I utilise what I've learnt and then mm-hmm. make that pathway for the next me who is looking for sport yeah. and give them more choice as to and empower them to go out and be active and live independent lives. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, just being a dad, you know, we've got, got two children now. So when I retire after Paris, um, I'll have a lot more time where I'm at home. I can do things. I'm really, really looking forward to taking them to their sport um, yeah. and being that dad that volunteers to be coach and um, and all the joy I think that's going to bring. So Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, family yeah. time, I'd say. Yeah, yeah that's awesome. Um, now, across the story that you have just told, I can't even begin to imagine how many blood products you have needed across, you know, yeah. the infection phase of it, the cancer phase of it. I don't know that you could even begin to add all of those up, but I suspect it's been hundreds, if not thousands of Australians that have donated the blood product that have kept you alive. And had that not happened, you wouldn't have the phase of your life coming up, not just for you, but as fatherhood, because you know, Australian blood donors have kept you alive, but they've also meant that you've gone on to have these beautiful children that wouldn't exist without them. What message do you have for those blood donors or for anyone considering a donation in the future? Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, I've had over 60 operations uh, that lends your idea to how much blood um, in various forms I've needed, lots of skin grafting and then transfusions and everything. So um, bone marrow transplants, it's not just not just blood, but um, yeah, it's uh, it is extremely important. My my father has always given blood. Um, yeah, right. And maybe it's kind of um, a blessing in disguise. I didn't use. Yeah. Oh, I might have used his blood. I don't know. But like, yeah. he's in a different state. But like, he's he's given over a hundred times in his life, wow. um, which is quite a lot when you think about it. You know, once a month or whatever it is. So, mm. um, he's a massive um, advocate for blood donation and. He always says, yeah, it doesn't hurt. It, it doesn't take long. I can chat with the guys and get a free milkshake and cookie. So, you know, yeah. sign him up. Um, yeah. But the simple thing is just go and do it. I mean, it seems to be even more accessible these days than ever before. You go to the shops and there's a van there. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. I would love to give. I, I believe I'm not able to because I've had a cancer diagnosis. But um. So that's I, not actually entirely correct. And I'm not sure what oh, your cool. situation is, but we'll pop a link in the show notes to anyone that wants to go through that questionnaire. Um, it doesn't like preclude you from donating blood for the rest of your life. Even if you've had chemotherapy, there is some, you know, possibilities of people being able to give blood. So um, we'll pop that link in the show notes so people can go through that quiz as well. Great pickup. I'll take the quiz and yeah, if I'm able to, that's just yeah. what they told we'll me. We'll go and do one together. I'll, uh, We'll go yeah, and sit I'd in a chair to. together and do one. would be awesome. Um, yeah, yeah our, I love that you said that your dad's a blood donor as well. And, you know, he could very well have been the reason that we have still got Marley because for her um, plasma infusion is life-saving when she relapses. I said to you off air before we started um, recording this episode that we spent last night in hospital with her and we had a bit of a concern that she was on the road to a relapse again. Hopefully that's not the case, but we'll be keeping a very close eye on her. Um, and then her infusions are life-preserving for every infusion in between. So without Australian blood and particularly plasma donors, we don't get to stay together as a family and we don't get to keep our little girls. So um, thank you to your dad. Hopefully Marley's got a little bit of that floating around in her body as well and just thank you so much for joining us on the pod today this has been amazing and i really appreciate you being so candid with sharing your journey and i hope it gets a lot more people in the chair to be donating blood in the future no worries kate i'll uh, i'll see you around the local i suppose <laughs> thank you nice to meet you I really try not to play favourites with our podcast episodes, mostly because it's such a privilege to be trusted with the stories of every single guest that's ever come on this pod. Um, but this is one that will have such a long-lasting impact on me, mostly because it was so close to home, but also because none of us ever really know what's around the corner. And Chris's story reflects this in all of its rawness and its beauty. Thank you to every person who has listened, rated, shared the podcast with a friend or sat down behind the mic with me over the last two seasons. It has been one of the greatest privileges of my life to be trusted with your stories. And in the time the pod has been running, those who have registered their donations to the Milkshakes for Mali Lifeblood team have saved just under 3,000 lives. And we're on track to hit that target before Christmas. When we sit around our Christmas tree on Christmas morning, we will have Marley with us. And that's thanks to Australian blood donors. And we hope that through making this podcast, we've had some of her donors hear our message of thanks and that we've encouraged some new people to make donations along the way. Our social media and my speaking engagements and general blood donation advocacy won't change while we rest the pod. So we aren't going anywhere. Thanks for being a part of the Milkshakes for Mali community. If anyone listening has connections at Listener or Spotify or any other platform that are looking for a new show, or if you have links to corporate sponsors that could make this project sustainable, please contact me via the Milkshakes for Mali Instagram account. Nothing feels more Australian like the modern demonstration of mateship than donating blood or breast milk and this product being used to keep another Australian alive. Our daughter is still alive today because of this incredible selfless gift. And it is my privilege to create a space for others to tell their stories and to give thanks. This episode was written and hosted by me, Kate Fisher. Today's guest was Chris Bond with audio production and welcome to country by my husband and Marley's dad, Jeff Fisher. 
If today has inspired you to make a blood donation, we would love it if you could add your donation to the Milkshakes for Mali Lifeblood team. You can just request this when you book in for your donation by calling Lifeblood on 13 14 95. So for now, it's goodbye from us. We wish you all a happy and safe Christmas and festive season with loved ones. And as always, I'll leave the final word to Marley. Thank you for my prize, Mark.